I'm Matt Booker. I'm Dave Laird. And I'm Marshall Boswell, and I am excruciating alive and encaged. And this is The Great Concavity. Is that from Infinite Jest? Yeah, that's no. Uh, that's Joelle Van Dyne. It's a description of her right before she eliminates her own map. Wow. Oh yeah. Um, before she has, she has too much fun. That was the other line I was going to use. I was going to say, <laughs> "I'm Marshall Possible, and I'm having too much fun for any one mortal to hope to endure." But I went with the other one. <laughs> yeah, that's good. You can use either. Uh, all one. right, future guests. No one use any of those. They're spoken for. Uh, thanks so much, Marshall Boswell, for coming on episode 46 of The Great Concavity. Uh, it's great to have you uh, for a whole episode, finally. It's been a long time coming. We got to talk to you, well, I got to talk to you uh, at ISU in 2016 for about 10 minutes or so. We had a, a brief little conversation there about uh, your keynote speaking and sort of the explosion of Wallace Scholarship that we were seeing. You mentioned, you actually hinted at uh, this book that we're here to talk about tonight, I think, The Wallace Effect. Mm -hmm. And we talked about some burgeoning fields of study for Wallace studies, like gender, religious studies, politics, global Wallace. Uh, but so now we get we get you for the full the full hour or two or whatever it shakes out as. So welcome to, to the episode, Marshall. It's great to have you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I, I would say most of the people listening to this show are at least aware of you or aware of <laughs> yeah. your books, but... I will go ahead and, uh, for those who are not familiar, give you the official uh, bio treatment and say that uh, <laughs> Marshall Boswell is professor of English at Rhodes College, Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, he's the author of Understanding David Foster Wallace, which came out in 2004. And he also co-edited the book Companion to David Foster Wallace Studies with Stephen Byrne. And in 2014 came out with uh, David Foster Wallace and the Long Thing, which is an edited collection about... Wallace's novels um, and I should say uh, is, uh, Marshall is also a accomplished uh, Updike scholar and writer in his own right so that's you might know him from those fields as well yeah and as Tony McMahon once said to me he referred to you as like the rock star of Wallace studies so ah Tony uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's because we went record store buying uh, we went to record stores yeah, together same. in Paris what happened there so. uh -huh, right. I, I remember you came back with your haul and everyone was gathered around and uh, wanted to see what you bought <laughs> we'll get to music later okay much to Matt's chagrin he always claims he's not much of a music guy <laughs> but it's not really true I think I just have bad taste <laughs> um, no you don't uh, you're good and I'll say that um Marshall and I first talked on the phone a long time ago. Long time ago. I don't know if you remember this. I don't. <laughs> um, back when you were putting together Understanding David Foster Wallace. Um, oh, cool. And I, and I was working at Columbia University Press. We were, we talked on the phone back before the days of uh, Skype existed. Um, huh. I sent you a bunch of like Xeroxes of stuff. Um, and That's amazing. You were like, wow. And you were like, wow, this is like the Dylan tapes, right? Because there was a lot of stuff back then that only existed. Uh, you know, it wasn't online. It only existed in Xerox form. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, I remember talking to you from my, my office in New York, probably 2001, 2002. Yeah, that's when like I was that. working on it. So, well, hello moment. again then. Yeah. Mm. yeah hello again. Um, <laughs> but, I that's mean, that cool. gives you a unique perspective on this, right? And that you've been around since... 
you know, uh, Stephen Burns' Guide to Infinite Just came out like 2001. One, yeah. Um, your book came out in 2004. You know, Wallace is still alive at this point, still producing new work. Um, you know, I, I guess this book, The Wallace Effect, is the second in the series edited by Stephen Byrne. Uh, you know, is there anything you want to say yeah. about, like, the series or, like, what, you know, what Wallace Studies has become now that there is, like, this series from Bloomsbury? Well, just to double back quickly to the first book, an interesting uh, anecdote that I like to tell now because I can. Uh, when I was working on that book, there wasn't much uh, understanding David Foster Wallace. There wasn't much uh, available about him. Um, his yeah. his biography was still shrouded in mystery, and there was still a lot of rumors about his substance abuse and various other things that he had tried to quell. So um, I wrote him a, a letter asking if he could answer some questions, and he... This is the only contact I ever had with him. And he replied by sending my letter back footnoted, which was great. <laughs> so I wrote, I'm, Mar I'm Marshall Boswell, and I got a one. And you flip it over, and he wrote hi and a smiley face, and you go back. And so, <laughs> so he agreed to That's answer funny. a bunch of questions I had about subsidized time and whether Joel was hideously deformed or so beautiful that she kept her face veiled and oh, all of this stuff. And he dodged all of it none of it was usable I'm sure <laughs> none of it was yeah. usable uh, but I still have the and there was but they were handwritten answers on yellow legal pad and I still have uh, those in my office so uh, that just gives people a kind of window at how humble this was at the beginning when we first started writing about him he was you know he was still a guy in his late 30s early 40s you know just starting to yeah. come to grips with what was about to happen to him um, uh, to answer your question though about the series the uh, I'm still kind of stunned by what has happened uh, with Wallace Studies. When that, um, when I wrote that book, uh, uh, this is another story, I guess. This is why this these conversations go mm -hmm. for a couple hours, maybe. But uh, <laughs> my original query to University of South Carolina Press um, was uh, a multiple choice question. I said I would like to do a book on any of the following: uh, Richard Powers, Jonathan Franzen, Rick Moody, or David Foster Wallace, and you know mm -hmm. which one, and uh, I and I got a reply back saying, "Why don't we do Wallace? Someone's already doing Powers." So, you know, in those years, it was still very tentative uh, which one of those writers, in my view, was going to launch. You know, was going to launch out, um, mm -hmm. and uh, I, I, I sensed it was Wallace, uh, but the jury was still out, and I was I was willing to be you know persuaded otherwise a little bit. Um, but the big event happened, you know, after his suicide. Uh, I remember it wasn't yeah. but a year or so after, maybe, when Stephen uh, contacted me. We had we had written to each other just as friends. We'd never met. But, you know, he contacted me and said, maybe it's time to uh, weigh in uh, now that this has happened. Um, and he was much more, I think, prescient in the sense that, uh, sensing that uh, a groundswell was, was starting to coalesce around, around him. Um, uh, but now um, I can barely keep up with it. Um, you know, it, it wasn't my mm -hmm. ambition to be a Wallace scholar. I mean, I, it was just a, a book I wrote so I could go up for full professor, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> and it was one I wanted to write. I wanted to write. I thought, well, I could do this. I loved that mm -hmm. book, and no one's written on it. Um, and since then, I've, I feel like my foot was attached to a train that just took off, and I've been running to catch up with it ever since. Mm -hmm. Yeah, tr it's truly a bonkers explosion that we're that we're experiencing and um your book just came out the wallace fact of course uh jamie redgate has a book coming out uh very soon you mentioned him in your acknowledgments 
Um, I don't know a ton about that one yet. Um, so I was, that's to... a that's a very significant book. He is a he was a student of Stephen Burns, and Stephen right, asked yeah. me to, to in Edinburgh. Yeah, in Edinburgh asked me to read his dissertation, um, and um, I was just blown away by it. Uh, so, uh, and it took him you know no time at all to turn that dissertation into a published book, which I have in my office now. Uh, but his book is about. Um, it's a, just a complete map of Wallace's vision of cognition, what he thought a, a self was. Um, and, I mean, he pays close attention to the presence of ghosts in the afterlife in Wallace, which mm. suggests that there's a, there's a holdout for the possibility of a soul. I mean, I think you get something similar in George Saunders. Um, so, but I think it's a pretty important book, and it's steeped in a lot of um, neuroscience, uh, uh, Cartesian philosophy, uh, and it's just really accessible and smart. So, uh, cool. Look for that one. Well, yeah, I'm I, you know, with something we talk about a lot is like uh, there used to be a time, you know, as you mentioned, like where you could sort of keep up with the field, and now it feels like there's so many articles, there's so many conference papers, there's so many dissertations, there's so many monographs that mm -hmm. it's almost impossible. Even if you did it full time, it's almost impossible to keep up with it all. Um, but you know what you said is really interesting to me about at that point in time when when Wallace was still alive and writing and he was compared to that group of people you know who you sort of compare him to in the, in the book or that he influenced later and I would put Franzen in there um Jeffrey Eugenides but you have a line in the book which I loved which is late in your book I think it's in the chapter uh, about against Wallace, which we'll come back to. Yeah. But but you said something about how, um, you know, in 20 years of teaching 20th century contemporary literature, you know, Infinite Jest is the only book that's compelled perfect strangers to lurk outside your office door <laughs> wanting to talk about it. Yeah. And, and that's yeah. that's God's truth. I mean, that happened again this year. I had a, a student yeah. wander in, you know, um, uh, he had he had been reading it this summer, uh, but yeah, that's true. Yeah, the only door knocking novel I think was the the great line there. Uh -huh. Well, and you know what's interesting to me about that partly is that uh, you know you you state in a couple places in the book that like Wallace clearly wanted to enter into this sort of literary canon or this tradition, right, where he was so ambitious that he wanted to to get that kind of success and fame, and in a way he has achieve that right like because even the forebears that you mentioned of barth and pension coover none of them are coming you know at least students today 20 years after the book is out not coming to talk about those people mm -hmm. um so i wondered if you you know comment on that to say like you know did he was he the only one who was that ambitious was not friends and that ambitious or powers or william t volman they, I mean, they're all ambitious, right? They are all ambitious, but I think yeah. ambition isn't what compels strangers to my door. It's the book. Um, Infinite Jest, mm -hmm. you know, fulfills the contract for the big encyclopedic novel. I mean, all the qualities that he needed to have to put it right there with Gravity's Rainbow and and um, even uh, Ulysses. I mean, he, he did all of that, but what's different about Infinite Jest is for all its intellectual heft and acumen, I mean, it, it's a book that people feel deeply deeply attached to they feel it um they mm -hmm. feel it saves them in a way and, and and it's because one of the themes of course is that idea of solipsism and escaping it through interaction with some other consciousness via a text you know the whole 
Jim and Condensa Wraith business of speaking in someone else's brain voice. That's what sets it apart. Um, and I think it's what sets him apart is that emotional core and that connection that he makes with his readers. And so the, the students or the strangers that show up, um, they're, they don't even really want to ask me, you know, what's the Lacanian overlap of a movie. <laughs> That's nothing. They just want to talk yeah. to someone who's who spent the two months on the book and knows what that feels like because they can't explain yeah. it to anyone else and no one wants to talk about it. Only people who've read the book want to know what that is. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And so the first book in in this series was really uh, Lucas Thompson's book. We had Lucas on talking about, you know, how Wallace drew from all of these other sources of really world literature yeah. uh, and mm-hmm. pulled from, uh, you know, all these other books to make his books, but your book, your book sort of reverses that, that Mm -hmm. view and where you're looking at how other writers were influenced by Wallace. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I wonder if you want to talk about where this project came from or what interested you in that sort of point of view, pointing the lens that direction. Mm -hmm. And this is the question I've been afraid of because it's such a strange book in a way. Um, (laughs) But I just figure I'll just, I'll just confront it head on. Um, the first two chapters in the book are where the book was born. Um, uh, I had written, um, I had written this essay on prisoners' dilemma and couldn't seem to get it to lift off the ground. But one of the things that um, derailed me in that essay was this uh, realization that what Powers was laying out uh, uh, for the novel that I wanted to give him credit for was so similar. The overlaps with what Wallace is famously articulating in Eunum's Plurum and in West where the Course of Empire takes its way, uh, that I got bogged down in comparing them. And it wasn't until I realized that um, instead of this being a digression, that this would be the way to talk about Prisoner's Dilemma. Uh, that was the first part. Um, uh, and then um, for years, I've kind of thought that the uh, the attack on Barth that is in uh, West where the Course of Empire takes its way was incomplete and it didn't quite account for how much he was borrowing from Barth that he concealed even down to the certain kinds of fonts that he was using in the structure of that novella. Uh, so all of this started to f- feel like maybe I had a book here, but uh, the one that really launched it was reading um, The Marriage Plot. It was such a strange book to mm-hmm. read, knowing full yeah. well uh, all the details that he had, that Eugenides had given us to clue a uh, clue uh, Leonard into Wallace, not just yeah. the bandana and the skull, but it's everywhere. Um, and once yeah. that hit, I thought, well, that, there it is. I mean, there's two things going on here. First, Wallace's claim to uniqueness is undermined by the number of people who were right there with him, you know, building that that apparatus for the post-postmodern novel that, um, that I'd like to sort of bring into Wallace studies. And then the second explosion of people who are it's not even just influencing influenced by Wallace. It's they are directly talking about him in the, in the, in their books. They brought him in yeah. uh, the same way he brings John Barth in. Um, so um, uh, in some ways, the book is ungainly because it's got this section before Wall toward Wallace and then um, the Wallace effect. But uh, it's hard to extract those two parts of of the argument. Um, and again, Wallace was deeply engaged in thinking about his place and in literature and uh, announced it by confronting it in his own work. So it's interesting to me that people who are coming after Wallace are doing what he did to Barth in their own works with Wallace. And I see some affection in it and I see some competitiveness in it, but I certainly uh, see it as a testament to the, the reach of his work. 
Mm-hmm. I love the way you put it on the last page where you call uh, these these figures in these novels revenants of Wallace mm-hmm. that kind of haunt the text. And it's kind of a callback to, you know, James's wraith, J.O.I.'s wraith and Infinite Jest, that Wallace's, you know, ghost is walking the halls of these different books that are coming out. And there's quite a slew of them that you, that you explore. And some that get mentioned uh, at the end is, you know, further possibilities like Chronic City and, mm-hmm. and other ones. Um, yeah, th- I, I thought that was a, a lovely way to put that, the revenant idea of his influence. Cool. Well, in those first two that you mentioned, you know, especially the Barth with Tidewater Tales and even Letters and Sabbatical to some extent, um, and and Prisoner's Dilemma, those are a little bit different than the other couple of books that you grapple with in that, you know, it's unlikely that Powers or Barth were aware of David Foster Wallace's existence when they were writing those books. Exactly. Uh, where Whereas, you know, Franzen and Claire Massoud and Powers... Later, clearly they were. Eugenides definitely, you know, he's in the, like you say, directly dealing with a living person or, you know, the ghost of a person at that point. But, you know, starting with Barth, uh, I want want to come back to that because, you know, you mentioned um, Charlie Harris Mm -hmm. and his his work on Barth and, you know, what what Wallace was trying to do there. I think, you know, it's interesting that you, you focus in on Tidewater Tales. Um, do you want to talk about like what specifically appealed to you there in terms of Wallace's influence? Well, um, or, or Wallace being influenced, I think, is the idea there that Wallace, you know, it, 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 right. So Wallace, you know, in it, um, West of the Course of Empire takes its way. He focuses almost exclusively on Lost in the Funhouse, that story, which has been franchised by C. Ambrose, the, the, the right. working the um, workshop instructor in that story. Uh, but my only argument there was Wallace's, what he accuses uh, Barth of uh, doing wrong, which is basically writing metafiction that does not love its reader, that is itself, it's its only mm-hmm. subject. That always struck me as unfair to Barth, uh, to the Barth who wrote Tidewater Tales, which is uh, a clear attempt by Barth to now move metafiction into uh, back to the world where it's addressing things outside where it's thinking about readers and and um you know he was uh, the shift that that wallace was claiming his generation was going to make and that he was going to make barth had kind of already gotten there and i always felt like i wanted to correct that and 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 you know charlie harris did the same thing right before as i was writing that Mm -hmm. essay um and it was really helpful for him to Mm -hmm. to go to that same mat and 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 explore this question but once I began rereading Tidewater Tales I became convinced and I'm still convinced that Wallace read it uh, with great avid attention uh, and probably a lot of the things that he was formulating in his head about where we need to go after metafiction might have actually been inspired by his reading of that book uh, and that you know to and then he had to create a Barth that didn't write that book in order to have the patriarch that he was going to um, kill you know so, um, you know, so this was a way to bring that book in front of Wallace's readers, because I think young people who encounter Wallace probably have a very narrow view of Barth as, as somebody to move beyond, whereas I think Tidewater Tales is, a, is an immensely rich and complex book that has a lot more overlap with um, uh, the kind of post-post-modern stuff that we now um, uh, associate with Wallace. So uh, that part of it's affection for Barth, but uh, I just thought there was a lot of... Um, there was a lot of things Barth was doing in there that I think Wallace had forgotten that Barth did <laughs> and claimed as his own, you know, <laughs> which writers are allowed to do. They're allowed to do that. 
and then probably later denied, you know, having read any of that stuff. Just as Eugenides denies that Leonard is a cipher for Wallace and all yeah. these hilarious denials that we see keep coming out. Or Wallace's denial that he'd ever read uh, Crying Lot 49. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Gravity's Rainbow. Mm-hmm. Well, and that mistake that I made earlier to say that, you know, Wallace uh, influenced Tidewater Tales is something that uh, David Markson deals with in, in Wittgenstein's Mistress, where he says, like, contemporary writers who seem to have actually influenced Shakespeare. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and he, he kind of makes a joke about that. But I, I mean, and also as like the timing of when that book was published uh, as sort of a feminist contribution to the literature, I think it's interesting uh, reading with the last chapter in your book, which is really uh, the kind of backlash that we're living in, um, mm. you know, against Wallace now. Wallace you, snark, as you, you call, call it. it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that that particular start, you know, starting with Barth and then going to um, Richard Powers and, and Prisoner's Dilemma, you know, you mentioned several other books that you wanted to maybe fit in there. Was there something else that was kind of in the timeline of whenever Wallace was emerging as a writer and like, you know, Broom in the System published like 1986. He went to grad school in 1985. He's writing uh, Westward in 1985. Uh, you know, that time period, is that still defined? Do you see it as by those postmodernist no actually that's the and uh, i don't know if i've addressed that in in yeah i do address this in some of the in the uh introduction but as someone who was alive and thinking back then i mean i'm 53 so uh when broom and the system came out i read it as a, in paperback as a college student um and uh, at the same time that i was discovering john barth and so one of the things about those two books tidewater tales and uh broom of the system is that i read them probably almost overlap um, and instantly saw the affinities for what Wallace was doing. But what what was so exciting for me about Wallace in 1987 was that he dropped that book at the peak of the Raymond Carver um, dirty realism moment, which he addresses in um, Westward, The Course of Empire Takes Its Way. I mean, we now know that that was the conflict he had with his uh, creative writing uh, compatriots and professors at uh, uh, Arizona, that Arizona. he was writing this old-fashioned, out-of-date, high postmodernism. It was it was distinctly out of fashion at the time. In uh, mm-hmm. you know, instead it was Bobby Ann Mason and and uh, Richard Ford and so forth. So, um, uh, but if there's another book in that mix that that sort of launched the the, the return to postmodernism with this new kind of earnestness or sincerity or whatever we call it uh 27 city is another one i mean that's exact by jonathan franzen his first novel yeah, yeah. uh caused quite a bit of a buzz because of its uh the newness of its hybrid form it, it was clearly wanted to be a kind of the lillo book uh, but it was also a book that wasn't so coolly self-conscious it seemed to be earnestly you know about something else besides itself um and uh, so my sense right from the beginning was that they were they were they they had an affinity and it was always it's always been um exciting to think that you know i read those two books broom of the system and then 27th city and it was only a year or two later that franzen went to go find wallace uh, mm-hmm. he noticed it as well right um i think one or the other i think either franzen tracked down wallace or wallace fr- tracked down franzen um 
so that would have been one, but, I, you know, freedom was the one to do with Franzen, to be sure. I mean, right. that was the direct encounter with Wallace. Um, yeah, I, I have to admit, uh, I'll be honest, that's a book that um, I have not read on purpose. Uh, and speaking of, of your last chapter here, Marshall, yeah, that's it's fine. Just, it's just part of my own um, disinterest in what I feel is, uh, you know, friends and actively trying to do something with which I disagree, yeah, or something trying to, I don't know, create characters in which he maybe then doesn't love them. And this goes back to your thing about Barth about. Uh, and, and Franzen's argument in Harper's about the contract novel, you know, like having this contract between the reader and the writer. Um, and I, I, I just got the sense that this was some, this freedom in particular was a novel trying to prove something rather than to share something. Um, and that, that was a big turnoff for me. And especially like written as part of the hype around that novel was that it was, you know, written after Wallace's suicide, right? Like yeah. he yeah. started writing it right after the, the day memorial after the second memorial or something. Yeah. You've got to find um, out about that, Marshall. Yeah. And only took him one year to write from that date. Um, so, I mean, uh, I'm kind of skipping ahead a bit here because your, your second chapter on powers, uh, you know, we're kind of glossing over cause there's a lot going on there. I feel like we could talk about that whole chapter for the next hour easily. Um, what you're doing with Rorty and Wittgenstein, and I absolutely love that that novel. I think it's a fantastic novel. I, um, I'm teaching it starting on Tuesday. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah. Well, your 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 students are in for a treat. Um, so we've kind of I'm kind of skipping around. I That's guess okay. what I'm apologizing for is that um, Eugenides, the marriage plot, to me seemed partly designed to do exactly what you're saying which is to to grapple with wallace's legacy mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. as a writer and to, i didn't feel like there was a whole lot else going on in that book <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah it's pretty pretty glaring isn't it the the emperor's children i thought it's fantastic it's one of those novels that because it directly um acknowledges wallace it feels like that's uh you know she's mm-hmm. giving you a, a pretty flagrant flag there to say like hey i'm talking about dave foster wall yeah when you yeah. have a kid a kid Please. in the bathtub like reading Read. the book um, when it's interesting she's chapter... she's the only one she's the only writer who did that while he was alive right yeah mm. that's important. i think there's there's a couple of other you know that are like minor references there's this guy joe mino who wrote a book that yeah, references like wallace him. but um mm-hmm. but then chapter five is the one that's the the friends and chapter and you know what you were saying earlier about uh some of it is rooted in competition it seems like that's the root of their relationship between wallace and franzen is um a a sense of competition and and in a way franzen got that you know winning the national book award being on Mm -hmm. oprah getting that sort of fame um in terms of sales and advances that wallace never did um but is is that how you would set it up i mean you said definitely he's the closest associated with Wallace as Franzen. Is, is that right? I would say Franzen's most closely associated with Wallace as a, as a friend. I would say the mm-hmm. writer whose work uh, stands toe-to-toe with Wallace in terms of its uh, technical virtuosity and the, and the range of its um, uh, sort of postmodern legacy and its innovativeness as powers. Um, so, I mean, mm-hmm. I really do feel like Richard Powers' career uh, is 
still, I mean, uh, unheralded as it, it, as, you know, I mean, I think the Overstory, which is a mind-changing book, uh, has also become right. a popular one, and I think Powers is in a great, great place right now, but, um, uh, you know, Goldbug Variations is the status novel that, um, uh, that Franzen is so jealous of. Uh, it, and um, and it also has all the erudition um, of Infinite Jest. It doesn't quite have, but and 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 Powers also, you know, I think Powers tells compelling stories, and I think he make, he's entertaining, and his books are both uh, metafictional and uh, you know realistic. I mean, he talks about them as being both. Mm-hmm. So for me, um, Powers has always been neck to neck with Wallace in terms of you know wanting that scepter of the predis- you know, the 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 heir to pension. Um, mm-hmm. And um, Wallace has kind of won it in some sense uh, just because of his stature, um, uh, I mean, because of his popularity. Uh, but I would still say the jury's out, you know, in the long term on Powers and, and uh, Wallace. Franzen, is, you know, Franzen is competing with Wallace on a, on a, in a arena that he's not actually in, you know? And I think that's, <laughs> and I, I mean, I think Franzen's a really gifted, he's an incredibly gifted writer, but uh, you from the beginning, you can tell that whole contract versus status argument, although he never mentions Wallace, it's clearly about trying to reclaim his own place from Wallace. I mean, mm-hmm. Wallace has the status, mm-hmm. okay? He has the status. Right, right. Uh, the fascinating thing is Wallace also has a very intense contract, as evidenced right. by the people <laughs> who, you know, come to my door, right? I mean, the, the connection mm-hmm, people right. make. So the fact that he has both of them, uh, uh, I think, was galling to Franzen. So Franzen creates this contract status narrative in order to to split them and say you can only be one or the other, and I'm I'm the king of the contract, right? Um, but that competition is nevertheless at the root, I think, of that whole argument. Um, uh, so uh, I, I, that's a little rambling, but I think that I hope that makes some sense. Yeah, you make that connection with with uh, Eugenides too, saying that. Eugenides and the marriage plot stages an artistic battle between himself and Wallace, mm-hmm. Wallace being Leonard and Eugenides being Mitchell. So it's interesting that we see these these two prominent contemporary writers, you know, setting up this kind of mock dialogue mm-hmm. with Wallace through their characters and are attempting to defeat him yeah. <laughs> or show that their artistic sensibility is or aesthetic sensibility or moral sensibility is, is superior. And well, what's striking in both novels, by the way, is that the Wallace character is the sexual dynamo, and and the the yeah, authorial stand-in is is recurring a lot it is, in the book, mm-hmm. over and over again. I mean, so Richard mm-hmm. Katz in Freedom, you know, is this womanizer, and uh, he takes Walter's uh, spouse and has an affair with her. Whereas in the marriage plot, Leonard, you know, is just irresistible to Madeline, whereas uh, Mitchell wants mm-hmm. her and loses her. To the more dynamic, um, electrifying, charismatic Bankhead. So, uh, mm-hmm. it, fascinatingly, they both stage this thing as a love triangle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and, the, and these all get sort of tangled up uh, later on when you bring in, you know, a sort of female opposition to this whole idea of literary ambition, mm-hmm. and uh, and really with a pretty prolonged treatment of Lauren Groff's uh, Fates and Furies. Mm-hmm. So it's it's hard not for me to jump around. It's okay. And, uh, you know, the, the, the idea that... It's what we do. That's uh, <laughs> what we do is just jump um, uh, and go where we want to. But the, you quote from Fates and Furies at one point where she's talking about, you know, this great American artisitis. Mm-hmm. 
right? And that I think <laughs> I thought that was a great quote, right? And that the idea that is often pointed back at Wallace and probably Franzen or Eugenides or any of these guys is that they are trying to be ever bigger, ever louder, jostling for the highest perch in the hegemony. Um, and that that idea, uh, you know, she says, blah, blah, blah. It's uh, you're strongest when you speak most quietly and clearly. And the one that I, mm. you know, I hear Wallace compared to more frequently now is George Saunders, mm-hmm. who, you know, really didn't publish a novel until 2017 with Lincoln and the Bardo. And, uh, you know, I wonder if, if you you had him in mind at any point as someone who's sort of the anti-ambition person, even though he achieved a ton of success, the original plan was always going to have a chapter on Saunders. Uh, but then, um, oh really? Yeah, um, cool. I, I remember Mary Holland. I was I didn't know what to do with the last chapter, um, and she said, "Well, yeah, do Saunders." But I didn't do Saunders because Saunders, although I could tell you, Saunders is Saunders has taken a lot of the Wallace. Um, uh, trademarks and 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 miniaturized them for the short story and made them uh, much more accessible. But I think what people get from Wallace, uh, particularly in terms of that connection and the sense of ethical urgency of what he's writing about, mm-hmm. Saunders I think um, is now providing for readers. Kind of the way yeah. you know um, you know fish filled in for the dead when Jerry you know went to his great reward or whatever. Um, <laughs> music reference there, but um, uh, but I don't I see it. I don't see I Saunders, oh, Saunders you know contending you know with Wallace as, a, as somebody who he has to overcome. Um, uh, but I think what you're saying is slightly different but interesting, is that Saunders' popularity now um, isn't haunted by ambition. It isn't haunted by um, uh, the sense that uh, he's arrogant to ask us to read his work. You know, that's the, um, that is the Hungerford argument, that, that you know, there's an arrogance to Infinite right. Jest that she's, she's uh, decided she, has nothing, she wants nothing to do with. And, and Groff's novel is, is, in addition to just being a brilliant novel, um, you know, does stage her own kind of battle against male ambition within the concepts, uh, the context of a domestic marriage novel, you know, and I think that's very self-conscious, you know, this is what Austen and this is what the, you know, this is what women are supposed to be writing and she's written this very subversive marriage novel that's really about artistic ambition, you know, um, but I do like your point about Saunders there, that Saunders' miniaturized um, version of, of, of whatever Wallace was putting out there uh, has is free of a lot of the uh, resistance that Wallace has, has uh, generated. Well, and I do think Lauren Groff is in that conversation now and that, you know, everything that she writes gets a ton of um, attention. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the, and, and this is really kind of like a lame line of questioning because it's like you write this whole book about like four other books and then we're like what about these other three books <laughs> oh that's okay um, that's you know totally, that is if anything totally happens to this approach. book um no if, if the book has any kind of impact that is what i hope happens that people go off and say oh i'm going to do mm. the thing on jennifer egan's the you know visit from the goon squad you know i would You're love right, scholars to start squad, doing yeah. more of this work you know so go ahead ask yeah. me anything about yeah, books it's, i didn't it's write funny about. i was I'm like happy. i was I was just about to write down a question, um, maybe three pages before I finished the end of your book, and I was like, oh, Chronic City really comes to mind. I did, I did a paper on Chronic City for the 2015 conference in Illinois, and then I turned the page, and all of a sudden, you've got Chronic City there, and I was like, okay, good. Marshall uh, has yeah. done his homework, as as expected. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's that's so, cool. Right, so there's, sure there's, a, there's an essay right there. There you go. 
so I'll tell you that there's, uh, you know, we had a couple people ask me about your book because they're interested in it mainly for that last chapter. <laughs> and yeah, that yeah. There's, there's a, a, a super, um, you know, big controversy around even discussing David Foster Wallace in public right now, um, which is, you know, a lot of what you deal with is that it brands you as like a lit bro to even say oh are you going to say that this is your favorite novel in a way that if you say you know gold bug variations by richard powers doesn't elicit that kind of response in the sort of cultural conversation um so i want to ask like you know is that what were you coming from to deal with hungerford and uh you know to deal with this uh, approach in particular that made you feel like you know what i want to actually engage on this and push back maybe the Hungerford, um, the Hungerford essay got forwarded to me about 20 times when it appeared in the Chronicle, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, every, it's like your birthday on Facebook, everyone weighed in on it. Yeah. So, so I kept yeah. getting it and, and people were asking me, what do you think? What do you think? And I thought, oh, well, okay, I'll, I'll read it. And then, uh, I found myself arguing against it in my head a lot. I thought, well, and mm-hmm. it was a kind of a fruitless argument because the simple argument is that, you know, you, if you didn't read the book, you can't weigh in on it. I mean, that's, simple uh but i i it, it, it didn't get dismissed in my head that quickly um uh i felt that there was a, a sort of a larger reckoning that needed to be made with it because i thought there's more to it than just he's arrogant um to make me read this long book and there's not enough time to read it uh that happened concurrently with another set of links that i kept getting particularly of the woman who was eating infinite jest i mean i, I got that <laughs> Jamie Loftus. Yeah. yeah, I got that one. I found then... that actually really hilarious. I know it is, I have other it friends is funny. in this community who don't find it so funny, but yeah. So her and then the person who made a bong of it, and then, you know, and I'm always getting sent, um, you know, the links to these kind of snarky um, uh, posts about my boyfriend made me read Infinite Jest, or I'm looking for a boyfriend to read Infinite Jest with. So in a way, I mean, I... I as I started working on that chapter, it just became a way to get all of that together and for me to reckon with what's going on. Why Wallace specifically is he being subject of this, you know, uh, the subject of this particular backlash? Uh, I wanted to understand it. And I, and one of the things I need to say is that this was done and over with before um, the Mary Carr, you know, before Mary Carr tweeted about um, her own experience with, with Wallace. That all happened. I, I'd written and the ink was dry. So I never, I didn't, I'm not oh, avoiding yeah. that. I just the thing was already over, and it was already off to the publishers yeah. before that happened. Um, mm-hmm. But that fed into it too, I think. Um, yeah, it did. And so, I mean, well, I mean, and that stuff, you know, part of the the response there is like, well, everything that she said in those tweets was in the 2012 uh, DT Max book. Yeah, it, none of it was yeah, n- unknown. Much, right. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing: I've come away with. I mean, to recommend to someone read a book is itself a kind of aggressive act. I, I don't do it anymore, <laughs> right? Because when people tell yeah, me you must yeah, read yeah, this, yeah. I think I've got a stack of books on my bedside that never diminishes. So don't tell me to read another book. I'm, I'm behind in my own <laughs> reading, right? Um, yeah. And it's doubly, uh, it's doubly uh, challenging or, yeah, yeah, to be handed infinite jazz and say, go spend two months of your life on this because I want to talk to you about it. So mm-hmm. I get that. I mean, that's part of the idea of I'm going to eat the book rather than read it because it's such an affront, totally. you know. I mean, you have to come to that book on your own because you want to read it. And and, yeah, uh, and really. so, and I'm fine with that. I don't, you know, for me, I'm not one of these people who's demanding everyone read Infinite Jest, including Amy Hungerford. That's fine. She doesn't have to mm-hmm. read it. She doesn't want to. It's just try to make an argument that you shouldn't read it, uh, having not read it, 
I thought was irresponsible critically and that needed a, uh, a way to address it. But putting all that together, I thought, I don't just want to say something on that. I want to actually give a full hearing. And I just thought Groff's novel was a way for um, uh, just a much more nuanced way of talking about what that you know, Jurassic vision of genius that she talks about, what it means and what, mm-hmm. what is problematic about it. Because there are problems with it. And there's problems with Wallace's own ambition that, I mean, I think I, I address in the book. Uh, other people have addressed them. Uh, other people are annoyed by them. Uh, there is a kind of arrogance to it. But without arrogance, there's no achievement, really, you know. So, hmm. uh, I, I agree with you on, like, all of those points. Um, <laughs> all right. And, uh, you know, we've had people more eloquent than myself uh, speak to these issues, so I'm not going to to go back to them. But one, one thing that Hungerford, I think, implies and that you also uh, follow up on is, like, the implication that Wallace's readership is overwhelmingly male. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I have to say, every time that comes up, we get tons of uh women who write in and say that's not true and in my experience like it's kind of not true and that you know if there is at least in the people that the circles that we go in the conferences people who listen to the podcast people who have been on the you know the wallace email list it's about 50 50 mm-hmm. and it's like maybe maybe is it 50 40 60 and like in their source sort of separation between like the popular perception of like what Wallace fans are and like the lived reality of it. And, you know, you've been to the Wallace conference. Uh, you, you've met, like you say, you just mentioned Mary Holland. Like is your, is, is that your reality of it? That it's still like, it's overwhelmingly male or is that a perception that's built into that sort of argument? Mm. Uh, it's largely male. I'm going to have to say that. Yeah. Uh, my, you know, um, um, I have taught Infinite Jest three times as a senior seminar uh, over the last six years. The makeup of our majors tends to be primarily female. Uh, our English major at my college, um, and mm. so, um, and I have seen a lot of women re- readers fall in love with a book. I've also seen a lot of re- women readers fall in love with a book and be in dialogue and argument with it, um, uh, and. Uh, various kinds of ways in where they feel that Wallace's maleness is a problem for them, even though the book still means a great deal to them. Um, So, um, you know, uh, I think one of the things that that has spawned, and I think this is healthy for Wallace studies, is is, um, uh, an interest in interrogating these issues uh, in the text Mm -hmm. uh, in a critical way, you know, in in, in a scholarly way. Uh, I can tell you for a fact that... um, uh, the Updike community is really struggling to figure out how to make Updike popular again with young readers, um, <laughs> yeah, as you can as you can imagine. And I mean, yeah. one of the things I'm going to suggest to some of the people in that community is that we need to we need to encourage people to take on whatever it is they have a problem with Updike, because if we shut it out, right. um, constantly defending him against charges of you know misogyny mm-hmm. and so forth, we're we're, we're uh, Doomed. We're doomed. Doomed. We're doomed. Mm-hmm. But I think the I think the Wallace community has been and continues needs to be uh, open to these uh, critiques um, because I, my experience yeah, is that they often come from people who love the work and um, nevertheless need to 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 say this. I mean, there's a great moment in uh, Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison where guitar says, "Can't I criticize what I love?" 
you know. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's that's important. I mean, that's a great line from Morrison, but I think it's important too as uh, the Wallace community that we welcome these um, these debates because they're part of the encounter with the work. And I think uh, it's mm-hmm. part of the energy. I mean, the fact that someone wants to um, write an entire article about gender in Wallace and have a problem with it, that means they spent two months reading the book. Um, mm-hmm. And they um, they feel like they they, they, they want to weigh in on something that, that that matters enough to them to do that. Um, so mm-hmm. uh, I, I oh, welcome no. it. And we go out of our way, you know, as a David Foster Wallace society, we go out of our way to solicit that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's not it's not just that we're open to it, but like like you say, we have to engage with that uh, and in, any sort of criticism where wherever it's coming from in some good faith, uh, absolutely, we we engage with, and like I say, we've made it a priority to confront Wallace not just with gender, but in race mm-hmm. and in economic status, all kinds of of interesting um, angles that we've published on dfwsociety.org, which I'd encourage any listeners to go check out. Um, in in that chapter two about Hungerford uh, and Lauren Groff, you bring up this sort of model or this idea of uh, literary genius. And I wanted to ask you about that because that seems like maybe a concept or a term that is tied up with some gendered idea of success or not just success, but like almost transcendent success. Well, and this goes back to that um, that idea of a trajectory uh, or a genealogy. You know, one of the uh, one of the animating uh, critical scaffoldings for the book is Harold Bloom's Anxiety of Influence, which uh, Wallace was deeply, you know, uh, conversant with because Westward the Course of the Empire takes its way as a sort of parody of it, where the young Ephebe is confronting his artistic forebear and trying to overcome him. I mean, the whole thing uh, is, uh, it takes Bloom head on. uh, And that, you know, the rest of the book treats uh, these younger writers as um, entering into, you know, instead of an Oedipal complex, it's a it's a love triangle, right? It's a marriage plot. But nevertheless, um, this idea that um, for Wallace, he identified himself with a tradition, and that tradition was male. And that tradition, um, you know, uh, is the tradition of, you know, genius, uh, big books, uh, encyclopedic narratives steeped in science, steeped in uh, all sorts of different kind of discourse. You know, you start with Moby Dick and work your way through. So, um, uh the, and, you know, so he, since he chose that, um, he, you know, is kind of unwittingly affirming the idea that that notion of literary genius is male by virtue of the fact that it the, the, the club consists almost entirely of males. Um, so, uh, you know, for me, instead of trying to argue it away, it's just something to it's it's an interesting thing to think about, and that's why I love the the Lauren Groff novel because um, she's you know she, she you know she just belongs in whatever club she wants to be a part of. But if you go back to um, Mad Woman in the Attic, the uh, Gilbert and Gubar they use Bloom to talk about the way in which a male writer does look at a tradition and struggles to find his place with it. Whereas for female writers in that book. They don't have that genealogy, and for her, I mean, for Gilbert and Gubar, I mean, this is a, a kind of freedom for the female writer. But um, they also acknowledge that you know how gendered uh, uh, these trajectories are, and how women writers have struggled to find a way into it, or um, have created a different genealogy entirely. So they don't, you know, so they they they're not con- 
contending in there. Um, hmm. So uh, that's how I read it. I mean, I see I see Wallace probably un, unwittingly uh, becoming guilty of that. But I mean, he just saw the writers who were at the top of the heap and thought, I want I want to be where they are, you know. Yeah, and I felt like whenever you know you're you're putting him in the context of these other writers too, that they don't they all sort of want that. I mean, wouldn't Jeffrey Eugenides like to be in the same conversation with Gravity's Rainbow and Ulysses? I mean, wouldn't Franzen? Wouldn't any of these? I mean, even Claire Massoud, wouldn't they want to be in that conversation too? Is it really just Wallace's emotional connection that was so successful in Infinite Dress that makes him more successful, or? actually achieve that goal well i think it's i think infinite jess is a specific kind of novel it's a it's an encyclopedic novel uh you know the the edward mendelson description uh of that genre which i think emerged around 1976 in order to explain gravity's rainbow uh creates a you know offers a list of things that an encyclopedic novel has to have um and mm. So it has to have, you know, it has to engage with a science. It has to have used various discourses. It must sort of express the um, the ideological underpinnings of a specific culture. It has to be long, you know, has, all of this stuff. And um, you can check them off one by one. Uh, so if Wallace didn't just want to be in that conversation, he went and 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 looked at what they were doing and thought, I'm going to write a book that's going to be put alongside Gravity's Rainbow. I'm going to book that looks like Gravity's Rainbow, um, even down to, you know, the way the chapters are split up. I mean, the, you know, even the way the font looks on the page. I mean, everything about it was very self-conscious attempt to be part of a specific tradition. So, yeah, I think Eugenides would love to be in the same um, uh, conversation, but he didn't sit down and write uh, a book as dense yeah. as Gravity's Rainbow. Uh, he just didn't, um, and neither has Franzen. Franzen's written his long books, but he hasn't written uh, the kind of books that you can write dissertations on forever, you know? Right. And, and, you know, I guess that makes me wonder if that idea of the encyclopedic novel has just fallen out of fashion. Uh, you know, we, I'm, I'm thinking maybe Garth Risk Hallberg, City on Fire. There are a few like Sergio de la Pava, um, but the, like they're pretty obscure now rather than like mainstream, whereas Wallace and Franz and Eugenides, they're still being published by mainstream publishers. Mm -hmm. Like uh, it just seems like that's sort of fallen out of favor. Maybe that's an argument in, you know, Lauren Groff and Amy Hungerford's favor is that that's not, you know, the sort of dominant ethos anymore or or am I off base? On no, that? I don't know if you're off base. I mean, yeah. but I would say yeah. this, that. It's really hard to write books like that, you know. I mean, there, yeah. there aren't many people capable of doing it. That's why that's and the stakes are that high, you know. I mean, you, you can think about, you know, the great composers. I mean, they're you know, the, for all the millions of composers, we can think of the five that everyone knows. You know, Haydn, Beethoven, Mozart. You know, so um, there is a pantheon, um, and you know, part of that is just the the the, uh, the achievement. Um, mm -hmm. uh, gets you there, not just not just your popularity or whatever. So. Um, uh, Infinite Jest. I mean, the feel of it. Again, you know, the the, the analogs to Joyce and and Pynchon are in the books. You can trace them. They're announced. They're clear. Um, and I think it's a pretty. It, it very few people I think have the um, uh, not just the ambition, but can actually pull it off. Uh, and mm -hmm. he, you know, and he did it. And I think that's also what's so galling to some of the competitors who write, um, you know, who have written him into their works is that whatever they want to say they they didn't make they they they, they didn't get into the club mm. yeah uh this this makes me think of adam levin who wrote the instructions mm -hmm. uh, which came out i think in 
2009, Matt, is it? You're reading it right now. 2010. 2010. 2010. Right. Uh, and, uh, and we just got wind through Kyle Beachy, who was on our last show, that uh, Adam is coming out with a novel next year that is 90% of the length of the instructions, which, which was uh, 1,030 right. pages. So it took him 10, 10 years, mm-hmm. nine years, to write this next sort of follow-up. Um, so yeah, it's hard. It is time-consuming to write one of these expansive uh, tomes, you know? Um, and I, I've never read the instructions, but I mean, yeah, the instructions makes a bid for that tradition. Yeah, I think right. it does. I, right? I think it checks all those boxes. Yeah. 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 The one uh, that we haven't really given proper credit to here, is, I feel like, is uh, the Claire Massoud mm-hmm. and the, the Emperor's Children. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I remember when that book came out, there was a sense that no one at that point had really written a great 9-11 novel. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure that they have mm-hmm. still to this day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, that there was a sense that, like, the world had changed, right? And, you know, you mentioned uh, all, all of these other writers who immediately got to work. Uh, I think Ipper's Children came out in, like, 2006. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, what, what was your, your make of it, like, in that moment in time? Like, how did it fit into, you know, what was going on in the world around it at that time? 2006, yeah, when I read it... Uh... The, the Wallace um, references early just, I thought, were, were clever and uh, a nice nod to the world before uh, 9-11. It just felt accurate to me. I wasn't, there was no Wallace Effect novel in my head yet. There was no marriage plot. Wallace was still alive when that book mm-hmm. came out. Uh, what I read it as is, is this sort of uh, Jamesian comedy of manners. And I, everything about it, just including its free and direct discourse and the rest of it, uh, I just I thought it was just a great sort of clean, polished literary achievement. Uh, so, and I didn't really give a lot of thought to it until I started to cast about for other books to do. And uh, I, on a hunch, you know, I remembered that character in that book reading uh, Infinite Jest, and that's I thought I'll give this a read and see what's going on here. And I was stunned by what I found there once I was looking for it, not just. Uh, that tub, he not only reads the book, but he goes to Amherst and spends a couple of days in a scene that is right. clearly a reference to Broom of the System. And then, and then um, uh, thinking about um, uh, the issue of irony more generally in the book and uh, Wallace's association with a kind of post-ironic novel and all the, you know, all the flim-flam about the age of irony being over. I mean, that age of irony was exactly what he was diagnosing in EU and it was plurum. And he was the one you know, asking for some kind of more um, uh, meaningful way of, of, of being in the world. So uh, rereading it with that in mind, I began to think that she was doing a lot more than most people were going to give her credit for and that Wallace was a bigger presence in her uh, thinking than um, I would have thought when I first read it. Um, it, it the, the through line, Wallace's presence all the way through to the end of the book, I think, uh, carries through. So. Hmm. Uh, I've not read uh, this book, but I loved your description of Booty on page 85. You said, Booty is that Wallace-esque infant, a pudgy, doughy man-child who leaves a trail of trash and spilled food and human waste wherever he goes. I wrote, ha ha, in my, in my liner notes of that. <laughs> and see, I missed that first time. I mean, none of that would have occurred mm-hmm. to me, you know. But, you know, mm-hmm. when you think right. about all those those references in Infinite Jest to being a human as being a goo-prone infant, yes. you know. I mean, that, she had <laughs> yeah. read the book closely, you know. Right, yeah. And the massive infants in the Great Concavity. Well, and and right after that, you bring up the fact, you know, that that Masood is, you know, married to James Wood, who was one of Wallace's biggest detractors. And then, 
after Wallace dies, he sort of changes his tune. It's like, oh, this guy's really well received, actually. And I, I changed my mind. He's a genius. He's really important. And uh, <laughs> it sort of reminds me a little bit of uh, Dave Eggers, who first reviewed Infinite Jest in like 1996 for San Francisco Chronicle and kind of trashed it. And then mm. later and then changed his mind. Right. 10th anniversary. Right. Mm. Yeah, and then 2006, he's like, "Oh, actually, this is one of the most important books ever." <laughs> and you know, I, I thought that was that was an interesting uh, a point. Like, it's it's almost unfortunate for Claire Massoud that every time she's mentioned in like a critical context, we have to deal with James Wood. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure that that gets old for her, but it's it's hard to discount. Like, as as a literary critic, do you see like that's just laying right there in your lap that you know Claire Massoud is married to James Wood? Well, and I struggle with that, you know, because Claire Massoud doesn't necessarily have to be associated with with James Wood. Uh, and so I've mm-hmm. you know I, I I thought about this as a uh, why is the female writer here? Why can't she stand alone? Why does she have to be? Why does she have to be uh, contextualized with her husband? Right. right. Um, uh, so I, I gave I almost wasn't going to mention James Wood at all. But uh, in that instance, I mean, the, I think uh, her approach to irony was so clearly uh, similar, let's say. Uh, it overlapped so seamlessly with uh, James Wood's conception of what a novel should do. Uh, how it should be read, how an author should interact with its characters, uh, and you know that idea of the comedy of redemption as as um, uh, the, the the key to a successful novel in, in the Jamesian mode. There was no way to talk about what she was doing without pointing that out. And and in this case, I felt justified in bringing in James Wood, and because she mentions Wallace in her novel, and her husband wrote extensively about David Foster Wallace, so it's just it's impossible not to think yeah. that. that Totally. That they didn't talk about David Foster Wallace over a glass of wine at home. I mean, they just, they had to have, yeah. you know. <clears throat> well, and and what you mean about irony there, I, you know, there is something about uh, going beyond that, maybe meta-irony or post-irony. Can you talk about what you were, you, I think you called it a blend of cynicism and naivete. Like, what, mm-hmm. can you expand on that a little bit? I would love to. That's I've gotten fixated on these two terms in Wallace's work, but I, I I I still hold to them as the key to getting at what is so unique about reading his fiction, uh, and what I think uh, George Saunders also carries with it. So, uh, for those of you who are listening, and if you're interested in the book, there are three incidents. There's three ep- moments in Wallace's fiction where he uses the exact same phrase. He says. It is a delusion to think that cynicism and naivete are mutually exclusive. He says that somewhere in Eunus Plurum. He says it on page 694 of Infinite Jess. And he says it um, uh, in uh, West where the Course of Empire Takes Its Way. And in all three cases, he always speaks of it in that, as in, in the negative formulation, that it is a delusion to think they are mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. So if you, uh, So I think he's asking us to sort of work at that to figure out what he does mean. So what he means is that cynicism and naivete are compatible uh, mm-hmm. and they are compatible in a specific kind of way for Wallace and w- the way I look at it is that under cynicism you know you do have irony and you also have self-consciousness and you have uh, metafiction all the ways in which a text will call attention to itself and hollow out its own um, uh, claim for realism this is a you know this is a mediated thing that you're reading and I'm going to hollow it out for you at the same time you have all of that uh, uh, 
interest in single entendre values. You have, you know, whatever Mario represents in Infinite Jest or whatever the uh, the accountants who are so earnestly going about their work in the IRS mean in The Pale King. You, so um, that doubleness, I think, is the is the key to Wallace's fiction. It's a way to think about what the post-postmodern is. It's metafiction with sincerity, right? That's Adam Kelly. Uh, so mm-hmm. that's what I mean by cynicism and naivete, or at least I think that's what Wallace means. In the case of Claire Massoud, um, irony isn't isn't this thing that you set against sincerity. For her, I think the sincerity she's ironic about sincerity, um, period. You know, and I think she is having some fun with Wallace's own kind of dogged earnestness, which probably was she might have seen as kind of an act. But I think the nine eleven push against irony, uh, uh, she correctly uh, looked at with jaundiced eyes, and for her. Um, you know, giving up irony in favor of uh, some kind of naive, goo-prone earnestness um, is a dereliction of the novelist's job to be critical, you know. So um, she might be slightly misreading Wallace there a little bit, uh, and I think maybe James Wood does as well, because, again... I agree. So Wallace is not afraid of irony. He just says it has emergency use, you know, but uh, he can't avoid it. I mean, as a, it's, 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 you know, it's, it, it, his work starts as a very self-conscious... Um, uh, mechanism, and then you you achieve some kind of connection from there. But uh, I take you know Claire Massoud; she's allowed to make those uh, interventions, and she makes them by way of you know the uh, the the comedy of redemption that uh, uh, James Wood writes about. God, and then she sort of puts it in opposition to the man without qualities, mm-hmm. which just seems like the, the polar opposite of Infinite Jest uh, in in terms of. You know, engaging with the popular culture mm-hmm. or or eliciting any kind of emotion from the reader. Yeah. Um, uh, and I thought that was a, a neat way to to sort of wrap that up. And maybe she was doing that ironically. Yeah. I mean, the easiest way is that Tubby's yeah. the man without qualities because he he changes his identity, becomes whoever she wants to. Uh, but I mean, I think you know, we that book is opens with Infinite Jest, then it then it is occupied by War and Peace in the middle, and then uh, Musil in the in the end. Um, fascinatingly enough, you know, War and Peace and Musil are also in the source texts for Freedom. You know, down to Walter's name and uh, the love triangle there, and then of course Patty reads War and Peace right before she has her affair with Richard Katz. So, what to do with that? I don't know. I mean, that, I, I don't know if Claire Massoud and Jonathan Franzen are friends. I don't know if Franzen read it, but that's an interesting kind of overlap that. That those three mm-hmm. texts, Infinite Jest, um, uh, War and Peace, and Musil, uh, are engaged in with in both of those novels. Unlikely that it's sheer coincidence, I would say. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay, this has been great, Dave. Uh, any any other um, questions before we wrap up on your end? I oh, I did want to ask about uh, music. Comes up a little bit. Uh, the band Bright Eyes is apparently mentioned in Freedom. I also haven't read Freedom, uh, like Matt, sort of intentionally. Bonnie Vare and Jeff Tweedy. Um, so obviously y- you've got some musical background, Marshall. Anything, uh, any good music recommendations, things we, we should be watching out for in, in 2019 here? Oh, in 2019, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting in my office surrounded by albums, but uh, unless you want me to recommend you to go listen to The Cure, you know, I mean, that's about as current <laughs> as I am. Right, I mean, I, I spent school, the weekend yeah. listening to Simple Minds and Depeche Mode, so yeah. Uh, yeah, I have cool. no idea what's going on right now in pop music, yeah. none. I have one, Dave. Yeah? I have one. Uh-huh. 
I just read a thing this week about an interview with Bruce Hornsby. Okay. Yeah. And he did a thing with Bon Iver and yeah. in his new album, he has a song called Echolocation, which he says is influenced by the text of the Pale King. Whoa. Yeah. So, I, so yeah, he's come out with a couple of things about Wallace, hasn't he? Bruce Hornsby. Uh, I think someone he has another song he says is influenced by Delillo. We didn't even get to Delillo mm. tonight. Right, so. Yeah. Well, in the December next yeah. time have that song Calamity Song, which the video is yeah. Eschaton. Weirdly enough, That's right, yeah. I, I think David, you were one of you were uh, fascinated by the Ethan Hawke being at the reading. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think I'd heard that before. That's in your book. And so another weird connection there is that uh, I just watched a movie on an airplane of Ethan Hawke starring as a uh, Bonnie Vare kind of rock star. In a movie called oh, yeah. Juliet Naked, where he, oh, okay. yeah, yeah, he I plays this that. guy who made this breakup album, then disappeared, uh, and and right, then he yeah. reemerges. But I do think Bon Iver yeah. is probably in the background of that. That's a uh, Nick Hornby. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, speaking of the sense. other Hornby. So yeah. uh, if you ever get um, if you ever get Ethan Hawke on there, you know, you can ask him about that <laughs> on the show. Yeah, we'll we'll try and get him on. <laughs> are, you, are you wearing that? Uh... I actually have met him. I did talk oh, to really? him once at the Texas Book Festival. Oh, cool. Uh, and long story, but I could tell you my Ethan Hawke story for sure someday. Yeah, I'll get that in Austin soon. All right. um, are you are you aware, Marshall, that Jeff Tweedy's new album, Warm, that came out last year, has a large uh, essay at the beginning in the liner notes by George Saunders? I did not know that, but I know that uh, again, people nice. send me this stuff. But I've seen the um, yeah. <laughs> clips of the interview that Saunders did with Tweedy, uh, right in San Francisco, or yeah, something. and yeah. they they're, they're, mm-hmm. they're clearly mutual fans. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, well, he men- mentions Wallace in it as well. Well, one thing I can cool. tell you is when I was in graduate school uh, in St. Louis, I played in a band called Enormous Richard, and we used to open up for um, Wilco. <laughs> Oh really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Nice. Not Wilco. Oh, um, uh, Uncle Tupelo. We still open up for Uncle Tupelo. Oh yeah, yeah. This was oh, in cool. 1988. Amazing. You know? So 88, 89. So wow. I have met him, um, but he he would not cool, have remembered cool. me. But uh, the the leader of my band, he knows Chris King. So. Oh yeah. There you go. Cool. I just saw Jeff play here uh, in Victoria last year in the fall. Just solo show. Yeah, it was great. Um, awesome, Marshall. Anything uh, sort of final thought about your book? Anything we didn't cover that you'd like to touch on? Um, no, just gratitude you know, for reading it so closely and <laughs> for you know uh, giving me the opportunity to promote it here um, to uh, the Wallace oh, community. Um, uh, I hope people find the book uh, compelling, and uh, I know that um, it requires you to have read the novels that I'm, uh, that are under examination. It's really a collection of yeah. essays about other novelists. It's really it, Wallace is. It's a ghost figure in my book as well, uh, but yeah. I do love all the books I wrote about, and um, mm. and so if anything, I hope it uh, uh, directs uh, Wallace scholars to novels they might have overlooked. Yeah, no kidding. And like for me, I haven't read some of the novels that you write about here, um, but even though I hadn't, you you do a great job of providing enough context and summary and background and connection to Wallace that it's not really a problem. Okay, if you haven't read them. I mean, it certainly helps, but. Um, but yeah, it's 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 very um, accessible in that way. So I think anyone who's interested in Wallace could pick this up and, and be have a good time in it. Great, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the, so the book is called The Wallace Effect. You can go Google it. It's available from Bloomsbury Academic uh, now. I think it just came out uh, last month, mm-hmm. January. Um, and and if you or January, sorry, if you haven't read Understanding David Foster Wallace too, that's pretty much. Uh, Central part. Great of starting studies. point. Yep. 
Yeah, so oh, that's I something I can tell you. If you don't have it. Um, I'm going to be uh, that's going to be reissued and expanded uh, next year. Oh, is it? Oh, yeah, awesome. Great. So cool. It's going to include the Pale King and and Oblivion. Oblivion. Yeah. Okay, great. Awesome. We will definitely be on the lookout for that. Yeah, yeah. So thanks again, Marshall, for being on episode 46. It's been great talking to you. Uh, we want to do a few thanks here. We have some new patrons this month since last episode. So we want to thank Nick Maniatis. Anyone ever heard of him before? Yes, I have heard of him. <laughs> yeah, he runs the Howling Fantods website and is a great friend of our show. He's been on several times. Uh, we want to thank Pierre Golpira, Dave Chandler, Cy Barnett, Ben Felonies Diamond, and Vincent Joseph Varro. Uh, new patrons, thank you all so much for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. Um, Marshall, if people want to get in touch with you somehow, what's the best way they can do that? If they have questions um, or want to discover more about your work, um, website? I have a website, Twitter. but it's I don't pretty, think you're on Twitter. I'm hey? not on Twitter. I have a website, but it's pretty uh, yeah. dormant. Um, it goes back to a novel I published <laughs> 15 years ago. That um, So, um, you know, um, if, you can find me on the Rhodes website, Rhodes.edu. Um, dig around in the English cool. department. Um, and, uh, you know, those faculty pages are available to anyone. I don't want to throw up my uh, address on here, but they can find it on the website. Sure. Yeah. Cool. Sounds good. Awesome. Uh, Matt, where can people find us? I think we're Concavity Show on Twitter and Instagram and Concavity Show at gmail.com if you want to write into us. Yeah. Uh, we do we do like getting uh, email from people who listen to the show. We do. Uh, and I will say also we have uh, a few, like maybe a handful of Concavity Show stickers left from our first print run. And mm-hmm. if anyone wants one, you know, get them while they're hot because I'll send them out. And <laughs> then and then there will be no more to send out. So Yeah, that's right. Cool. Uh, as usual, we want to thank Robin O'Neill and Parquet Courts for uh, letting us use their song and art as a, in association with our show. And I want to give a special thanks to Laura Ewan from Bloomsbury for sending us your book, Marshall, and a host of other books that she sent us over the last few years. She's been fantastic. Uh, so huge shout out to Bloomsbury. Uh, and I also want to thank Tim Persson, episode 41 guest, who had me in his class last week at the University of Victoria for their last class on Infinite Jest. They've been looking at selections from it, so he brought me into the class to talk about the show and the community and scholarship and the conferences and things like that. And uh, I got to take part in the really rich discussion with his students who were amazing and brilliant. Uh, We were talking about some of the AA sections that he had them read, uh, things you learn uh, at the Ennett Recovery House and uh, Boston AA stuff. So thanks again, Tim, for that. That was really rich. Um... This has been episode 46. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And Marshall, thanks again. Thank you, guys. Catch me now as I say. Into darkness. I thought to be extinct. Line of questioning, because it's like you write this whole book about I'm like losing four you other here. books. And... and uh, you just just power through it, man. Just like, <laughs> just like if if Skype breaks up, just pretend that it doesn't. It'll okay. come back. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it always catches ed- it catches up. Eventually. We can edit it out later. It's totally fine. Um, I'm trying to think where I was going with this is say.